Welcome to Shit Your Teenagers Won't Tell You, a podcast about everything you need to know about teens. I'm Kathy. And I'm Meredith. And we speak teenager. Uh, did we also mention that we're best friends? We've worked as admission officers, prep school administrators, and most importantly, have coached thousands of teens. In other words, we have seen it all. So join us every week as we give you the lowdown on all the shit your teenager isn't telling you. Because trust us, there's a lot of it. And if you don't know what to do with the teenagers in your life, don't worry. We've got your back. Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Shit Your Teenagers Won't Tell You. Today is a very special day because we have an amazing admission professional and also an even more amazing friend joining us for our episode today. Kathy, are you excited? I'm so excited because Tim is basically like family to me. Like he literally comes to our family celebration. So he is, in fact, an honorary Chen. I love it. (laughs) All right, everybody. So today's guest, special guest star is Tim Bruno, who is currently the Dean of Admission at USC. But that title alone does not do... Tim's career in admission and higher ed justice and service. So Tim, if it's all right, I'm going to brag on you for a little bit. Bear with us. I'm doing it. it. So you began your career as an intern at USC, which is amazing. (laughs) Also a student at USC. And in that time, you have seen the university change. The USC of today is a very different institution than when you started, which we're excited to hear about that. And you have in that time worked in enrollment management and admission since the late 80s. And you have seen the huge expansion of USC's admission operation. You've been involved in deeply in undergraduate admission. You also graduate admission, new student orientation, and you're responsible for enrolling the sort of most talented selective class in USC's, what, how old is USC? 143? I should 143 know that. this year. Yeah. Good job. That's pretty impressive. <laughs> Before we got on the call, you had mentioned that USC's admission office is one of the largest admission offices in the country, which I don't think it was when Kathy and I worked there. Given uh, no. that each of us worked there. It's like gotten a little states. bigger. I was the recruitment manager, and I think there were like, like 12 of us. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so in addition to your sort of responsibilities as a dean, you're very active in multiple professional associations. Whenever we go to conferences, we see you around, but we can't, you're always like rushing off to some fancy board of directors <laughs> kind of meeting. And you've been really involved in a common application organization. And just you are well known throughout the industry. Everybody knows who Tim Bernold is. It's fun to go with you to a conference because you're always invited to things and everybody well, he can, to you he can get us high. into the good parties. I'm like, Tim, where are you going? <laughs> <laughs> Take me with you. I'm just but most importantly, you. most importantly, we're super excited to have you because you've seen this process. You've been helping young people access higher education. For decades and you know the ins and outs of this process and we are just like so delighted that you are taking time out of your busy schedule to spend with us so thank you welcome tim yeah. well thank you and i would just like to as a side note say that tim is responsible for my career so he is the person do you remember this tim i do I do remember You this. remember this? Okay, so I was like 23 and I was like lost about my career and the career advisor from Annenberg, because I went to USC, said, you need to talk to Tim Brunold. I just met him and he's great. I think you'd be great in admissions. And so I did an informational interview with Tim 
when you were managing the admission center, I totally remember this. You were so great. And you're like, we're interviewing you. You want to turn in a resume? I'm like, hell yeah. And that's how I began my career in education. I was working at the mayor's office before that. Oh, that's right. Yeah. I forgot you were at the mayor's office. I was at the mayor's office. Like my career change happened because of Tim Bernold. I mean, the lives this man has changed, truly. I know. I'm so excited. I'm extra excited because I owe Tim a lot. Well, I appreciate both of you. I appreciate that you invited me here. I'm happy to spend some time talking about all this stuff. It was really great working with both of you when you were here. I'm sad that you're not at USC and that you haven't been at USC for a while, but you're still doing good work. And we still get to see you, right? That's, yeah, that's the exactly. best part. We're still in the that's same the industry. Yep, yeah, yep, yep. Absolutely. All right. So now you're in the hot seat, Tim. We have many questions for you. So okay. I was wondering, how big is the admission office now? Oh, gosh. I think the undergraduate admission office, I think we have close to 50 people who, <laughs> who you would call admission officers, folks who read applications, who travel, who, you know, they all have different titles and things, but they're basically yeah. admission officers. And then there are a few other folks that help behind the scenes administratively and so forth. And then that's the undergraduate admission office. And then we've got about 15 people in the graduate admission office. And then we've got four or five people in our visitor center. And then we've Mm -hmm. got a couple of other people who work in orientation. So it's a really big operation. But yeah, Yeah. about 50 admission officers. Holy cow. I mean, it was literally like 12 people. It was like... (laughs) I mean, we had like four states and one of them was Texas. And now that's probably got like 20 people. (laughs) Yeah, no, you're exactly right. And in fact, I think this is a really good theme that illustrates how things have changed. Yeah. I tell people, I mean, it may seem like ancient history now, but the first classes that I was helping to recruit, even as a student intern, I mean, it was like at the end of the Reagan administration. So put that, you know, (laughs) put that in perspective. And in those days... I mean, it's the cliche of talking about much simpler times, Mm. but it's really true. There were fewer admission officers. There wasn't as much outreach. There just wasn't as high a level of sophistication in this work as there is today. And a lot has changed in the last 30, 35 years. I'm excited to have you on the show for many reasons, which I've already stated. But one of them is that you are truly an enrollment specialist. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of, and you know this, the challenge with admissions is that it's not transparent, right? So parents don't really get to see what's happening on the enrollment management front. And so what we hear mm-hmm. a lot is, mm-hmm. oh, you know, it's just a luck of the draw. It's a lottery, right? We hear that all the mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. And we always say, you know, like enrollment management, it's actually a science and there is like real data being used. Can you talk a little bit about what that is, how would you want to explain that to a parent who says, it's just, it's pure chance. Once you meet a certain criteria, it's just chance. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it it does seem to an outsider who's looking in, it absolutely seems like it's random or just chance or it's luck of the draw. And I do tell folks that it's anything but that. It's probably about 180 degrees, the opposite of that as anything can be. That isn't to say that especially at a big institution like USC, that we're thinking about every single decision and wringing our hands over it. In fact, there's a lot that comes with volume. And my reality in this work has been much characterized by volume. 
the work that we do at USC in the admission process, I don't want to say is fundamentally different, but it does have some different flavors than my colleagues who do this work at smaller institutions because scale really brings with it a lot of challenges. But going back to your question about enrollment and enrollment management, institutions, whether they're large or small or wherever they are, are always thinking about what kinds of students do we need to further our mission? What kinds of students who our faculty want to teach? This admission process generally isn't just about saying, well, who has the highest grades or you know, maybe who gave us the most impressive essay or the most impressive test scores? Yes, students need to be good academically. I, I've never heard a college say that they don't care about academics. Of course, all educational institutions care about academics. But what we're thinking about is what are the kinds of students that will help to improve our university, will help us to fulfill our mission? And a lot goes into that. There are many, many stakeholders around the university that I have to think about that maybe even I have to give input or take input from as we're thinking about how to build a class. Just for clarification for our audience, Tim, can you talk a little bit just numbers like volume of applications and sort of what ultimately the different, how many schools there are at USC, that kind yeah, of stuff, sure. so people can get a, a sense of that scale? Sure, absolutely. I don't know the exact ranking of what I'm about to say, but I think when I've looked at the data broadly, USC probably is in about the top 10 or 12 universities in the entire country in terms of application volume. So this past year, for example, we received almost 81,000 first-year applications, so applications basically from high school seniors, and then about 9,500 transfer applications. So altogether, that's close to 90,000 undergraduate applications. And then those get reviewed and read. And we ended up admitting, again, between first years and transfers, about 10,000 students. And that work, as you might imagine, is very labor intensive. And we might talk a little bit more about that in our conversation today. But that's the sense of scale. We're enrolling about 3,500 new first year students every year and maybe about 13, 1400 transfers. And all of those students are filtered out to something like 18 different schools and colleges at USC that teach undergraduates. So as you might imagine, not all of those schools and colleges are the same size. We might have like the Dornsife College, our liberal arts college at USC. You know, they had something like 1500, 1600 new first year students. And then you can go all the way to the other end of the scale where our Kaufman School of Dance had 30 new students this year. So that's a very interesting part about this work is that not only are we thinking about how each and every student who is accepted might help further the university's mission, but we're also needing to think, because we are a research university, we're needing to think about how all of these students might be distributed to our various schools and colleges. So it's a pretty complex process I think all of the students we accept, of course, we're thinking about who might be a good match for USC, but a dance major, to use that example, might be a very different looking student than a biology major. Mm -hmm. And we have mm -hmm. to be able in the admission process to accept that fact and be able to sort of work with all of those kinds of students effectively. I like that you sort of talked about 
different students who get into USC look different, have different backgrounds, different experiences. And I want to kind of drill down on that more because I think one of the side effects, it's sort of not really preventable, I don't think, of parents perceiving the process as being somewhat opaque is that we see, Kathy and I, when we work with high school students, we see sort of this, and I think it might be unique to us, kind of where we live in the Bay Area. It's a high octane culture. Most of the the families that we work with are, you know, are pretty ambitious about their college plans. And so there's a lot of frenetic activity happening in high school to become the thing that the college wants, whether that's a set of activities. And, oh, well, you know, the latest thing Kathy and I were talking a lot about last year was we had all these students randomly talking about doing research in the summer. And we're like, wait, you're 14. What do you know about doing research in the (laughs) summer? And so there's so much coffee talk about what you need to do to get into X school or Y school, or USC really likes this versus that. Mm -hmm. I know my neighbor's kid got in because they did this thing. said this or that, right? And so I just would love to go directly to the source and have, (laughs) have your sort of commentary on how would you respond? Because I know that you get that all the time too. You know, how do you right. respond to that kind of rhetoric? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think I'll preface my response by first saying this is all about sample sizes. So in the examples that you both talked about, you know, the chatter that goes on, people saying, hey, I know how this works because I'm aware of five students who got into school X last year. Well, the sample sizes I work with are tens of thousands of data points a year, tens of thousands of students a year. Multiply that by a 30 plus year career. My perspective in how I answer this question is informed by that. And so, yes, if you're someone who's looking through a very sort of narrow hole through the fence saying, ah, I understand how this is going to work, you're probably not going to understand it honestly at all. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, how does this work? I mean, what are we looking at? Well, the first thing is there is no such thing as a universally acceptable student. And I guess by that, I mean, I guarantee you that there is not an individual out there that any and all colleges in the U.S. would accept. Mm -hmm. Just because a student is accepted by these five schools, there is no guarantee that these other five schools are going to have any interest in that student. And that blows people's minds, because I think as we think about this, you often hear this concept of merit. Well, you know, I want to get in on merit. And the first thing that I would respond to like that is, well, what do you mean by merit? And then people get a little exasperated because they think that you're being obtuse on purpose by asking that question. But it's a true question. Well, they'll say, well, it's the people with the highest grades. Well, (laughs) Don't you understand that there are tens of thousands of different high schools as an applicant pool? I mean, at USC, we got applications from about 13,000 different high schools last year. Do you mean to tell me that there's no variance in the way that those 13,000 high schools grade students? Okay, well, then what about people with the highest test scores? Those are standardized, right? That should be a fair way to do this. Well, again, All you have to do is scratch the surface of the research that's been done to show some of the challenges and presumptions that come with standardized testing. And those might not always be things that are going to help colleges find the students that are the best match. So people say, hey, it's good to be well-rounded. That's an old piece of advice that we hear. And I'll tell people that there's nothing wrong with that advice, but 
I think colleges are trying to create well-rounded classes of students, not necessarily only looking for students who themselves are well-rounded. We've often joked, we like students that are very angular, and we just bring a lot of those different kinds of students and, and bring them together if we think that they're going to help us meet our goals and objectives. Thank you for saying that, because I do think it provides just a little peek behind the curtain of the quantity <laughs> and pure scale that you're dealing with, right? Like, I think it's really easy when you go to high school, you can only think about your high school and the three local high schools, right, as competitors. And I like that you just said, how many 13,000 different high schools you receive yeah. applications? That's right. Right. Like wrap your brain around that, like 13,000 different high schools, and you have to find a way to somehow understand where. And this is a question we get out. Do you understand where kids are coming from? That is actually a question we get a lot. Mm -hmm. Like, do the colleges actually get yeah. that this class is harder, harder at my school? Well, I'll tell you, I mean, a good admission office tries to understand. Mm -hmm. You know, I really feel like that's part of our job. Part of our responsibility as an admission office, if we're doing this work correctly, mm -hmm. it's to understand. Yes, of course, if it's a high school that we're consistently getting lots of applications from, we're going to have more data points. We're going to have probably a better understanding. But even those schools that we're not familiar with, whether those are schools across the country, across the world, we have a lot of tools and resources to help us understand these things. Mm -hmm. You might remember high schools generally share what are called high school profiles, mm -hmm. which are almost like brag sheets of the high schools, but they help to put the high school in context. You know, these are the things we value. These are the classes we teach. These are some perspectives about our students. We have other ways of learning about that as well. We can do a great deal of research on our own. There are data sets and so forth. But again, to your question, yeah, I... It is our job to figure this out, and I think applicants need to feel confident that admission offices are doing the kind of homework we need to do to understand that context. It's in our best interest. So I would tell applicants, even if they're skeptical, it's in a college or a university's best interest to understand these differences, because if we're not doing the work to understand the context of the high school, we're probably not going to be as effective in selecting students who are going to succeed at our institution. Yeah. I really appreciate you talking about what I see as just a level of care given to the application process and especially given the volume, right? You know, and I think that's something that, I don't know, maybe it's my old admission days coming out, but I would love for you to share a little bit more with our audience, because I think the average parent just doesn't know a lot about admission officers. They don't know what they do. They don't know a day in the life. They don't know that they spend months on the road learning about places. Why should a family have confidence in the admission officers? Because what we hear is it's just random. Mm -hmm. They're going to look at it for two seconds and just move on. And so can you talk a little bit more about just the thoughtfulness that goes into decision making? Yeah, absolutely. You know, this is a great question because, you know, first of all, this is interesting work. And a lot of people who are admission officers, they're early professionals. We have folks on our team, every college has people on their admission office team where this is their first job after their own education. 
Mm-hmm. So I understand some of that skepticism because the young people are youthful. It's not uncommon for admission officers to be younger than the parents of the students who are applying. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I will tell you, just as we do with selecting our students, we put a great deal of care into selecting our admission officers. And we think about creating an office of admission officers who themselves bring different experiences to the table. One of the things we work most diligently to avoid is groupthink. We don't want everyone in the admission office who's reading applications to think the same way. Now, that isn't to say there aren't standards, there aren't right ways of doing things. Absolutely, there are. We have rubrics, we do extensive training throughout the year. We're very cognizant of things like implicit bias, explicit bias as well. And we work very hard to do norming in our process to make sure that people understand their own biases and understand their own perspectives and don't let those influence their recommendations in inappropriate ways. It's also the case that it's not typical for one single person to be the decider. So for us, it's a lot about distributed work. It's a lot about one set of eyes, one mind going through an application and recording their perspectives. And then then another person coming along later and doing the same thing. And so the real hope is here that with enough different inputs, with enough different folks on this end, taking a look at an application or a set of applications, we'll get a lot of different perspectives. You've often heard, I know you've heard that the phrase holistic admission, I know families hear this a lot. This is a phrase that's become kind of a buzzword in more recent years. The popular press has picked up on this. So you hear it all the time and it's sort of overused, but it is this concept that selecting students is both an art and a science and that individuals are more than just their GPA. They're more than just, again, if a school uses it, their test scores, that we are seeking in the admission process to get to know the whole person. And that's what admission officers at a place like USC are trained to do, have experience doing, and so forth. But it is qualitative. I mean, I use that phrase instead of subjective. Subjective has a negative connotation, but some Mm -hmm. people would call it subjective. It is in the eye of the beholder. Mm -hmm. That's absolutely true. But, you know, part of our success is looking past who's in the entering class and seeing, are they thriving once they get to our institution? Are they persisting? Are they graduating? Are they engaged when they're at our university? And if we can't answer yes, to all of those questions, then we're perhaps not doing something correctly in the admission process. Mm -hmm. And that's where this feedback loop happens. And so I'm not here to say that we're infallible in the admission process or that somehow we know so much more than everyone else, but it is our job. It's our profession's job to understand how to contextualize student experiences and how to take what a student presents in their application, and how to understand and interpret that in the context of our institution. And that's what I was saying a few minutes ago, how there is no universally acceptable applicant. Yes, some students will have more choices. Some students will be accepted to many schools. But 
this selection of students is a very campus specific, a very college specific process. I, I, as in speaking for the university, I might like a particular applicant very well for USC, but it wouldn't surprise me in the least if some other institution said, yeah, you're not a good fit for us. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you and I are both part of the Character Collaborative or our organizations are. And I'm wondering, what role do you think Character has to play in the admissions process? It's an interesting conversation. The Character Collaborative has been talking about it for several years, right? And I think schools more and more are looking at ways that they can somehow measure or evaluate character in students. And a lot of the work that we do at Village is coaching kids around character. And why is that important? And, and how do you think about that in the role of admissions? Yeah, that's a great question, Kathy. Character, just to set the stage of what we're talking about here, again, the, I think the word character has very positive connotations when someone says, oh, that, that person has good character. I think we all have ideas about what that means. I'm not disagreeing with that. But when we talk about character in the context of admission, what we're really talking about is those personal traits and characteristics that are inherent in each individual. Why does that matter or why can it matter in the admission process? First of all, there is a great deal of academic research that suggests that there are many different personal attributes and characteristics that absolutely predict success and engagement in college. And this isn't just according to USC. I mean, there's a great deal of research. The Character Collaborative was born out of research that was conducted at the Harvard School of Education and not just at the Harvard School of Education. There's this enormous body of research. And so we believe the research and we believe that there are multiple intelligences. We believe that all sorts of character attributes, whether they're things like persistence or grit or empathy, or interest in social issues, or willingness to see other people's points of view, kindness, all sorts of things that have academically and scientifically proven positive impacts on success and engagement in college. So as we think about that, we say, well, gosh, you know, these are the kinds of attributes we would like to see in the students at our institution. So if we can look for those kinds of attributes in the college application process, we'll probably improve the results of the students who are coming. Now, you mentioned about measuring it, and that is, that's the challenging part, because we also know in the college admission process, there's a lot of attempts to game the system, a lot of attempts to say, not just let me put my best foot forward, of course, we're all going to do that but to really package oneself in a particular way. And, you know, packaging oneself in a way that's authentic is certainly acceptable. But what we worry about is when people try to fit themselves into some identity that isn't genuine to themselves. I'm a firm believer that if students are themselves in this process, warts and all, better outcomes will result. Amen. That's easy. Well, and it's and it's easy for me to say because I'm not the one who is having my application considered. This is not specifically my future as a student. So I get that that's a lot to ask someone. Yes, you you in your application as an applicant, 
you want to make a positive impression, of course, but making a positive impression doesn't mean selling yourself as something you're not. And so when it comes to character, what we're looking for is clues about character, not just, for example, someone saying, I'm empathetic, <laughs> but, but you know, there may be examples that we can find, whether they're in letters of recommendation or whether stories that students tell us or the way that they respond to our questions, that we might understand that. And I think that's true with any character attribute. It's something that we notice through our reading of the application rather than let's go here and look at this. And this is the document that will tell us if someone has grit. And this is the document that we look at that tells us that someone has integrity. It's never as easy as that. It's much more about looking again holistically at the entire application and the entire student and starting to tell an, a story about them. Can't talk about character enough. Okay. You've been in the admission game for a long time, and I'd love to hear, and many trends have come and gone in that time. I'd love to hear what's a, a change or a trend that you are seeing in sort of enrollment management more broadly that you feel really good about? You think this is good for our industry? This is good for young people going to college? I like this. And what's the other side of that coin? Is there something you're starting to notice that you're kind of keeping your eye on? Yeah, I mean, I think a a really good trend that has happened in recent years is just the test optional movement. And I say that as being someone who sees value in these standardized tests. I do see value because I'm someone who I'm very quantitative. I'm very data focused. Mm -hmm. I believe in research and research absolutely shows that standardized tests, SAT, ACT, when used appropriately and as one of multiple measures, can help to improve our predictions about students and how they'll do in college. Mm -hmm. So don't get me wrong. I mm -hmm. believe that standardized tests have value. And I also believe that they have many, many, many negatives that go along with them. And as I think about the use of standardized tests in the college admission process, what I'm thinking about are here are all the positives, and then here are maybe things that are less positive. And honestly, I think there are more negatives than there are positives. So I like the fact that colleges, and the motivations may be for different reasons, but that colleges have started to be more optional in the way they think about standardized tests. Why do I think that's a good thing? I think that's a good thing because I think that it further highlights and demonstrates that this is a process that's not numbers-based solely. I think that when you have a high-stakes exam, it begins to take on much more weight than it is really given by the people who use it. Mm -hmm. You know, like it or not, I'm one of the prime target markets. I'm one of the prime consumers of college test scores. Those standardized tests, regardless of how they're marketed, they're aimed at me. They're aimed at me as an admission officer. And I have found value in them as I've described. But I think the marketplace puts much too much value on them. 
And I think it takes the attention away from the other kinds of things we've been talking about today. So that's a good thing that I think that's happening. I think a, a trend that I'm less happy about, yet again, I understand why it's happened, is that students are applying to more and more colleges every year. Yeah. And, you know, we all know that you can still only attend one college. Mm -hmm. And yet again, I understand, and those of us in the admission side, you know, I will take responsibility or or at least apologize. I understand why many people are doing this, because as colleges have become more selective, people say, well, I need to apply to more schools because I might not get into any. And so in many ways, it's a very reasonable and a very logical outcome to the way the marketplace is today. I'm just not happy with it. Back when I applied to college, uh, you know, a long time ago, <laughs> before, yeah. you know, the internet, before the, the web, you know. In the dark ages. In, yeah. In, in the, the before times. Know, exactly. There were about three to four million college applications for seats in freshman classes, first year classes that were submitted each year. So if you took up all of the applications that were submitted to all the colleges, 35 years ago, it was about 4 million, I think, is actually the number. If you go forward to just a few years ago, the number was something like 14 million. Now, that's like a 4x, 3 to 4x increase. Well, we haven't had three to four times as many colleges open their doors. We don't have a huge expansion in the size of the first-year classes. So, you know, we know that students are applying to more colleges. And I understand why that is. It's consumer behavior. I get mm -hmm. it. I just think it's a shame because what I think this breeds is a vicious cycle. Why are colleges so selective? Why do they have such low admission rates? It's because so many people apply. And there's so many things baked into the marketing and baked into rankings and all sorts of reasons why in our culture, maybe it's a human trait. People want things that are hard to achieve. So many people believe, gosh, if a school has a 5% admission rate, it must be really, really good. And a school with a 50% admission rate, it must be really sketchy because, you know, that's how things work. And so I'm not real happy about that. But also I'm here to acknowledge that colleges have contributed to that as well. Yeah. Well, that's what colleges want, right? When I was working at USC in admissions, I was like, we're the sales force. Like, my job is to make us look like we're really selective because it'll drive kids to want to apply. And I mean, look at the marketing efforts. You have a son who just went through the process, right? I'm sure the amount of marketing mm -hmm. materials that you received was shocking. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, I, I, let me just do this real quick. I'm. Um, <laughs> I saved, not for this oh, purpose, but I brought these in. And this was literally only about a third of oh what gosh. our son got this last year. Yeah. And lots of people have that same experience. And again, I get it. And we market as well at USC. So yeah. I, I'm not sitting right. here today saying, you know, yeah. hey, gosh, look at us. We're we're so pristine in this. Like it's a system and mm -hmm. it's a competitive marketplace as well. There are 1,600 or so nonprofit four-year 
colleges and universities in the U.S. that accept students into bachelor's degree programs from high school. So you got 1,600 different schools and colleges basically vying for the same set of students. And of course, you know, there's a pecking order and and different colleges have different marketing positions. And, and again, don't get me wrong, I absolutely understand the privilege that my institution has in this process. There are a lot of folks in similar positions to mine that would love to have the problems that we're talking about here. So I, I'm not blind to that fact. Yeah, I they would love 80,000 applications. Right. <laughs> absolutely yeah. right. Yeah. They would love a third of that. Yeah, for sure. We pointed out oftentimes, Meredith and I and the families that we work with, we're like, colleges are a business. Like, let's be clear. Mm-hmm. It's not just like a altruistic. Oh. <laughs> like, yeah, it's both yeah. a place of higher learning and and a business. Yeah. And well, I think yeah, your, you know, your point earlier about it's a sound process. It's not a complete meritocracy as measured by the way most people define meritocracy. I work really hard, so I deserve it. Or I have really good grades, so I deserve it. And that's not really the paradigm. And so I think it's really helpful to have someone like you on here talk about how thoughtful the process is. It's very robust. It's very measured. It has a lot of safeguards. And it's also, you know, it's rooted in research. It's grounded in data. And I think that's very helpful and hopefully comforting to some of our audience who thinks it's so random. I want to be thoughtful of time. And we're bumping into sort of the end of our time. And Kathy alluded to the fact that you all just went through this process in a very different way with your son. And what's one parent takeaway that you have right now that you would want to sort of spread the the gospel to other parents, not from wearing your hat as the dean of admission, but rather from wearing your parent hat? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, for me, the bit of advice, there's a couple things that I know. One, if your child wants to go to college, there is a college, probably multiple colleges for them. And I don't care what their academic record looks like. I don't care what they want to study. I don't care what their hopes and dreams are for the future. If part of their goal is to go and earn a bachelor's degree, there are absolutely paths for them. So I put that out there. It's absolutely true. But what I would say is that students very much need to be allowed to follow their passions because it's the student, it's the young person, it's their turn. It's not our turn as parents. You had your turn. Yes, you know, you (laughs) had your turn. And yes, as parents, of course, we want what's best for our children. We want them to be happy. We want them to be fulfilled. We want them to be successful. But for us, the biggest thing was we wanted our son to be happy. We simply wanted him to find a path that he was excited about, where he could pursue his passions, and where he would feel good about the experience. You know, college isn't easy. Even when you have the best fit, there's a lot of growth that has to happen. There are a lot of obstacles that are going to pop up. This is all natural. This is all normal. But I think the quicker that parents can really accept that this isn't about their college experience, this is about their child's college experience. And this is challenging. This is a challenging thing to accept as a parent. And again, my wife and I are both working in education. My wife is much more educated than I am. 
And I will tell you, both of us, we had to follow our own advice sometimes because it's easy to get caught up in this hamster wheel. And for our son, it worked out really well. But I'll tell you, going through the process, we told each other, we've got to practice what we've been preaching. So in a lot of ways, we were very pleased with the outcome for our son. But I think more than that, we were just happy that we were able to really pull back and let him take the lead. And I hope that other families can have that reality in their dynamic as well. Yeah. I mean, that's the hardest thing for parents that we work with. You know, they have so much anxiety around this process. They watch their kids have so much anxiety around the process and they want to help and they want to support. And what ends up happening is they end up doing too much, right? Mm -hmm. Or inserting themselves in -hmm. ways they don't need to. And I totally get that impulse as a parent and like finding yourself in that place and being like, oh, pull up. Right. Evasive maneuvers. <laughs> right. Well, because look, there, there's a process. This is like real. There are deadlines. There right. are right ways to do things. Mm-hmm. There are ways that are a lot less effective to do things. And we as parents, even if we're committed to letting our child take the lead, you know, we don't want to see him drive off that cliff, obviously. And sometimes the hard lessons have to be learned or the risk that those real results are, are, you know, that there are consequences to actions. Sometimes that just has to be experienced by the student. Mm-hmm. Real life consequences. We talk about it all the yeah. time. Well, Tim, thank you so much. This has been amazing. I love oh, so many things about you, but one of the things that I have always loved about you is your measured, reasoned, thoughtful approach to this work and especially how data-driven you are. I love that. I love the numbers. I love that it's informed by data, right? Real information, not just like my feeling about this thing, right? It's like, (laughs) Mm -hmm. no, right? This is a business that you're running, really. And it takes a lot of thought. And I appreciate how much expertise you have. Well, I appreciate the invitation to come talk about it. Always happy to do so. It is my life's work. I think it is endlessly interesting. And I really appreciate shedding light on things that are misunderstood. Mm -hmm. It's a big thing that I like to do in my career. So thank you for the opportunity. You're so welcome. It's great to have you on. Great to have you, Tim. Thank you. All right. All right. Until next time. See you soon. Bye-bye.